This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, the opening morning, and this is the inaugural event in this wonderful new venue, the Spark Theatre. I hope you like it. Um, I'm very excited about the, the expansion and the new opportunities that it represents. My name is Alan Little. I'm a broadcaster and journalist. I also chair the board of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, it's my great privilege and, and pleasure to introduce you to the author of this uh, remarkable book. Uh, Gavin is an author I admire very much, not only for the, for the fascinating nature of the su his subject matter, but also for the, 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 for the fine feel he has for the English language. He really is a highly accomplished uh, writer. So I recommend that at the end of this session you go over to the book signing tent <laughs> where you can buy a copy of the book and uh, continue the conversation with Gavin who will be signing. I'm going to ask Gavin to say a few words uh, first of all and then I'll ask him a few questions to warm up. But this is your event, so please have your questions for Gavin ready, whether you've read the book or not. So please give a very warm welcome to Gavin Francis. Thank you very much, Alan, for that uh, generous introduction. And um, it's a tremendous pleasure for me to come and speak at the Edinburgh Book Festival as ever. Um, it's very much, I feel it very much, home turf and uh, th that makes you all a home crowd, <laughs> so no pressure. It's a little bit like a, a sort of best man's speech, where you, when you uh, are willing the jokes to work out and that the whole thing won't fall flat. Now, I'm going to start this um, very brief presentation. Just, I'm, I want to tell you just for the next five or ten minutes what this book is about, what I hope to accomplish with this book what I hope you might be able to take away from it. And I'll do that by showing a few quick slides and doing two very short readings. Now, this book begins actually very close to home in a place that all of you will recognize. Middle Meadow Walk. And um, Middle Meadow Walk is very close to my practice area where I work. I'm sure there's a few of my patients in the audience too. Um, when I am pedalling around south side of Edinburgh on home visits or on my way into work, it's not unusual for me if I've got a few spare minutes to stop here at this bench just for a couple of minutes and admire the incredible elm trees and uh, cherry blossom trees in the meadows. And they undergo, as all of you know, the most extraordinary annual transformations. They go through the most beautiful changes over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite season is this one, which we're just coming up to now, autumn, when, when these lovely golden leaves of the cherry blossom and the crimson leaves from the elms gather up around your ankles as you sit in that bench. Now, I also trained in Edinburgh, so I studied medicine, and I began 25 years ago uh, living in Sheens and walking through that park every morning. And right near the very beginning of medical school, I went to a biochemistry class, which, you know, biochemistry doesn't normally fill many people with ideas of passion and enthusiasm, 
But I can, I kid you not, at this biochemistry class, I had something approaching a kind of revelation of the intricacy and the beauty and the interconnectedness and the complexity of life. And it began with um, this rather inauspicious picture. Can you all see it from over here? So this is a hemoglobin molecule, actually. And as oxygen clasps into the hemoglobin molecule, it shifts its shape. It twists and transforms. And then as it moves on from your lungs out into the tissues of your body and gradually gives up that oxygen, it shifts its shape backwards again. And um, the biochemistry lecturer explained this process. This was on acetates in those days. It wasn't uh, uh, animations. Explained this process. And I thought, that, that's amazing. That's truly something incredible that our life, the, the sustenance of our life is dependent on this incredibly intricately calibrated process. And then the lecturer went on to explain something even more incredible, which was that that molecule is identical between hemoglobin and the chlorophyll that gives the leaves their color. And that molecule which sustains our own lives is the same one at the core of chlorophyll that sustains all life on Earth, because there would be no life on Earth unless we could capture energy from the sun. And that, to me, seemed like the most extraordinary, really very um, elegant appreciation of how all life is really connected. And I wanted to begin this book with that real appreciation of the subtlety and the intricacy and the complexity of that process of change. Now, transformation is one of the most um, ancient and resonant themes, of course, also in literature and art. And in this book, I wanted to talk about stories from medicine, about how change is so much of what makes us human, but also about how it's been something that has inspired um, poets and thinkers for millennia. And I'm going to do you a very short reading about that. 2,000 years ago, in the Metamorphoses, the Latin poet Ovid painted nature and mankind seething as if all matter, animate and inanimate, was caught up in cycles of change. He closed his poem with a declaration of the fraternity of life and a passionate plea to treat all beings with compassion. And that compassion, too, is at the heart of clinical practice. Medicine could be described, after all, as the science, the alliance of science with kindness. And this book, I hope, is a celebration of dynamism and transformation in human life, both as a way of thinking about the body and as a universal truth. Because the, the cosmos is in evolution all around us, the universe is expanding and the gyre of the galaxy is spinning, the earth wheels through its orbit and the moon gets more distant with every year. A tilt in our planet's axis gives us the swing of the seasons. More than a trillion tides have already rinsed the shores of the earth. To be alive, too, is to be in perpetual metamorphosis. So I'm very interested in this idea that change is something that keeps us alive and change is also something, as a doctor, that... that we all want to effect. You know, as a doctor, many people come to clinic because they want to invoke some change in their life or in their thinking or in their body. 
or they want to influence some otherwise unstoppable change for the better. And so this book wants to move back and forward between this idea of change as something that inspires uh, philosophy, culture, art, but also something that really inspires medicine. And um, it begins really with the idea that from the moment of conception, through birth, through puberty, we're always in transformation. There's 24 ch short chapters in the book. About a quarter of them examine these big way stations of life, um, going from the, the factors that influence conception. A lot of work, as I'm sure you all appreciate as a GP, is about promoting or preventing conception. Um, then the moment of birth, you know, this most extraordinary transformation that happens in the first hour after birth, when we go from a being dependent on blood flow from the placenta to a being that has to breathe air. And the, the heart goes through a series of convoluted changes to accomplish that transition. Puberty, now, um, puberty is something that for a long, long time I thought of as the initiation of something new. And when I started to read more about it, I realized that actually it's the release from something that has been long suppressed. We actually suppress the initiation of puberty deep in our brains and the hormonal parts of our brains until it unfolds almost like a seed unfurling. Um, as, the, as many of you know, uh, I'm the only male doctor in my practice. And um, so I don't tend to deal with um, too many issues around about the menopause and hormone replacement therapy. And maybe a 40-something-year-old man shouldn't be writing about that anyway. But um, I see too many patients with these kinds of problems to not know a little bit. Uh, so I went along to the menopause clinic in Edinburgh with, uh, I'm very, very grateful to Ilsa Gebbi at the menopause clinic for letting me sit in with her and learn what I could. And of course, on into the later stages of life um, with changes in memory and dementia and end-of-life care is something that I talk about in this book. So that makes up about a quarter. I also talk about this moment in the 21st century where we're discovering all sorts of ideas about fluidity and flexibility of gender and exploring in particular how this isn't a particularly new idea, actually. If you go back to the writings of um, Plato, if you go back to various other classical authors, if you go back even into the 17th, early 18th century, gender was thought of as something that was quite fluid and that people could transform one into the other with relative ease. And it's only really the last couple of hundred years with hardening rationalism of the Enlightenment that we've become less flexible. And so I wanted to examine that idea, as well as the fact that you know, one in 2,000 babies are born with some degree of intersex. It's not a rare phenomenon. It's actually relatively common to be somewhere in the grey zone between male and female. About a quarter of the chapters in this book try to look at all those changes that we undergo that are to do with our mental experience. You know, from sleep, uh, down in the bottom right-hand corner here, you know, babies spend um, up to 18 hours a day asleep. Why is that? Why do we need it so much? And it's true that we do need sleep. If you don't have sleep, 
after a while, you can't control your body temperature and you can't support life after a few days of no sleep. And so I wanted to explore some of the reasons why that is, as well as dreaming and the effect of dreaming on uh, our figuring out all our subconscious complexities and our difficulties in life. Hallucinations and the drugs that induce those. Memory. Um, memory, actually, is, at the end of the day, very small physical changes in the synapses between our brain cells. So there are actual genuine physical transformations at the molecular level that allow us to be situated in space and time and imagine the future. And so I wanted to explore some of those. And finally, um, laughter is, of course, uh, people say laughter is the be best medicine, um, unless you've got diarrhea. <laughs> and uh, why is that? Why does... Um, why does medicine make us feel good? Why does it make us less allergic but better able to fight infections? Why does it make us sleep better, feel better? So those are some of the more mental transformations. Um, one of the most upsetting and difficult things, of course, uh, to deal with, both if you suffer from it and as a therapist, is um, anorexia. But conversely, when somebody breaks through their anorexia and finds a way to cast it out, and respond and return to a normal, healthy body weight. That's one of the most profound and, and beautiful transformations to see as a doctor, somebody coming from the edge of what's compatible with life back into uh, flourishing health again. And uh, I wanted the book also to explore some of the more, um, some might say, supernatural transformations. For example, are there, is there any truth in the myth of the werewolves. Is it possible that people can uh, turn into wolves with hair growing over their faces and shunning the sun and the daylight? Uh, and so I explore some of the background theories of that. It is true that your hair can turn white overnight if you have a bad shock. And I talk about why that might be. And then some of the other hormonal transformations that change our body, like gigantism. Um, and finally, the last uh, a, a, group of, a group of transformations I wanted to talk about are these kind of crises that can occur, amputations and fractures, how we overcome them, and um, those that we impose and that we will upon our own bodies. You know, you might choose to pump up your muscles uh, to become a great bodybuilder. This is um, Eugene Sandow, who's a German circus strongman in the late 19th century, and he coined the term bodybuilder. But this is, a, this is a dream that humanity has had for millennia. You know, all the great cultures have got stories of a muscle-bound strongman like Hercules or Samson or even phases in the, in the stories of Krishna that are about building up your muscles to extraordinary uh, levels. A lot of people come to clinics wanting to transform their bodies in more direct ways, like uh, cosmetic surgery. And um, finally, they are referenced as the tattooing that is now so common. Uh, approaching now, half of all adults have a tattoo. And, uh, well, a third to half. But half of tattoo recipients regret them. <laughs> and I look into some of the reasons for that might be. So, thank you for listening to my very brief um, run-through, really. I just wanted to give a sense of the breadth of 
my interpretation of this theme of human change. And I want to do a very short reading from um, near the end. Uh, as Again, as some of you will know, my practice is on the south side. And um, sort of approximates pretty much to this um, picture taken from Blackford Hill. Just under 4,000 people are registered at the medical practice where I work, and at times their difficulties seem to flow like a torrent through the clinic. But I'm conscious that my colleagues and I catch only the briefest glimpse of their lives. Our consultations are just momentary eddies in a vast tide of human life. Across the span of a morning clinic, I might arrange admission to a hospice, mitigate a storm of anxiety, explore a worrying discomfort, medicate a feverish baby, adjust some antipsychotics, assess a healing fracture. I might celebrate the remission of cancer or commiserate over its diagnosis. Voice congratulations on the safe birth of a baby, then condolences over the death of a spouse. Some of the work is modest and routine, some of it is urgent and dramatic, but most of it is rewarding and worthwhile. At its best, medicine invokes and influences human change, and the possibility of change means hope. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gavin. One of the things I should have done at the start was introduce you to our British Sign Language interpreter, uh, Linda Duncan. Um, I'm sorry now that I had my back to her. I'd like to have seen the word for diarrhoea, but... (laughs) (laughs) I missed it again. (laughs) I'll try to sneak it in later. Gavin, let me. Um, that, was a, that was a great synopsis of the book, but there are moments in the book where you have to close it and, and just ponder the, the extraordinary, miraculous nature of our, own, our, of our very existence. And one of the things you do is you convey to the reader the sense of beauty that you see in the human body, but also the sense of wonder of mm. many of the things that keep us alive. Uh, and one of, the, one of my favorite parts was, the, that, was that moment, and I... I, I couldn't understand why I'd never asked myself in the, all the years I've been alive how it is that the mechanism by which a newborn baby goes from being oxygenated by the mother's placenta in the wound to being oxygenated by its own lungs. Mm. And it's an extraordinarily finely cal- calibrated... Uh, uh, just briefly, if you can yeah. just talk us through the science of it. And well, essentially, um, when a baby is growing in the womb... Um, it's very important that the blood, all the blood that's coming from the placenta goes out to help the baby grow. But yet our circulation is set up so that it has to go in an endlessly looping figure of eight through the lungs, back to the heart, through the body, back to the heart, through the lungs, back to the heart, and so on. But if you want all the blood from the placenta to go to the body and not the lungs, you have to have a couple of little bypass circuits. And there's two bypass circuits that operate when we are in the womb, And about 90% of each heartbeat goes through those bypass circuits. So only 10% is left to go to the lungs. And in the first hour after birth, or the first few hours, those have to close. Otherwise, the baby really struggles because it's it's an incredibly inefficient pump that spills 90% of every heartbeat. And um, those moments after 
birth, you know, I did uh, a few months as a, a very junior obstetrician in The Simpsons, and as a medical student delivering babies, and when I worked in India, I would deliver babies. The, that moment when a baby goes from kind of grey-blue to pink up is one of the most extraordinary, beautiful, elegant transformations that you see just in those first moments. Mm. And occasionally in medicine, we see babies at the six-week check where it's not cl they've not closed properly, and we hear the sound of that inefficient pump, and that's what the chapter explores, what, might, what you might have to go through in order to effect that change that should have happened in the first hours after birth later on. And you, 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 you convey that very well, that moment of, of grey to pink, uh, and, and you feel celebratory as a reader. You think, you share the sort of celebration of the miracle uh, with you, the writer. Mm. And one of the other things you do is you, com you, and you did this in your last book as well, Adventures in Human Being, and to some extent in, the, um, in your book about the Antarctic. You, you connect your own clinical experience as a, as a doctor with what other ages have thought about the same phenomena. Mm. Uh, you bring the wisdom of the ancients and the 18th century enlightenment and, mm. and other, other cultures, Nordic mythology, mm. um, and the observations from there. And one of the, one of the chapters, or the, one of the essays you do that very well in, is the opening one, which is about werewolves. Uh, and you start with a patient of your own, so, <laughs> <laughs> who might even be here. Uh, but you, you, you to, to, let's be clear, you do anonymize all your patients. Yeah, no, I'm very careful. Yeah. The word, uh, yeah, the word confidence means with faith. Confidentiality means with faith. So, yeah, people have to have faith that they're not going to uh, find themselves in the pages of a book. So when yeah. I started reading, I thought, why is he starting with werewolves? It's a, it's a bizarre thing, but it actually it's, it's, it's very, very effective. Mm. Describe the condition that you saw in one of your own patients. And, and how it is that previous ages and other cultures associated mm. that condition with the mythology of people transforming themselves into animals. Well, there was a, a, a very famous paper published in the 60s by a neurologist called Lee Illis who proposed that the myth of the werewolves is all down to a very rare condition called porphyria, which uh, there may even be some people in the audience with porphyria. And there's eight different kinds of porphyria according to which enzyme doesn't work properly. And one or two of the types of porphyria, which are themselves rare, so this is very, very rare, um, can cause periodic psychiatric problems. So people can get um, disturbances, almost mania, um, psycho psychotic experiences with hallucinations, and it also causes people to shun light because your skin becomes very sensitive to light. And it can, in untreated cases in the old days, not nowadays, but in untreated cases in the old days, it could cause hair to start growing over your face. And so Lee Ellis proposed that the myth of the werewolves could be down to this um, phenomenon of porphyria. And I wanted to start with um, werewolves just because I wanted straight away the reader to know, okay, we're going to be pulling from different kinds of ideas of myth and culture, and we're going to be pulling also some science. So there's a bit of biochemistry here about porphyria and also mental health and psychiatry, because the final phase of the chapter moves on to those people who have the conviction that they've been turned into an animal, which does happen every so often. And why shouldn't it? You know, children, we watch children at play, and they play at being animals constantly, because that's the way they have for imagining being faster or sleeker or stronger than they really are. And it would be odd if some adults didn't, when their mental health starts to break down, uh, undergo a similar kind of, of change. Um, 
So that was part of the reason for opening with the werewolf chapter. Also, um, there's, several, there's a few little nods to um, Ovid's Metamorphoses through this book. And, um, and Ovid opens, that's his first transformation, is a man into a wolf. The other thing you do uh, is, is uh, uh, periodically through, through the book, is talk about the idea of the body clock, not just the circadian rhythm that, keeps us, that makes us um, mm. alert during the day and sleepy at night, but also the, the, the clock that is with us all our lives. So how does the body know, for example, after, let's say, 14 or 13 or 14 years, to switch off the mechanism mm. that suppresses puberty? Yeah, and it's, not, it's still not fully understood that um, I... Um, I did quite a bit of reading and I asked the uh, endocrinologists at the Sick Kids as well a, a lot about this. And there's a phenomenon whereby we don't really understand why puberty is getting earlier and earlier. You know, if you go back two or three hundred years, it was normal um, for girls to get their first period at 16, 17. Whereas now it's much more common to be 11 or 12. And there's some theories that are to do with the fact that people are better nourished. There are theories to do with the fact that... Um, Perhaps there are more toxins in the environment, but there's still a lot of dubiety about why this is and what actually switches that mechanism. And that particular chapter explores the idea, again, which isn't understood, that if a child is adopted from a home life or an environment where um, their care is not of good quality, they're not being well nourished, they're not being loved, they're not being well looked after, and children that are then adopted into an area where they're really well looked after, well nourished, well loved, well cared for, those children go into puberty a lot earlier than either child, either well nourished or, or um, poorly nourished, that's left in the environment. So, and no one understands why that is. And I was chatting to um, uh, a friend who is a botanist and explained this phenomenon and how incredible it was. And she said, oh, well, of course, plants do exactly the same thing. I said, really? And she said, yeah, if you take a plant that's in rubbish soil, sandy with no nutrients, and you put it and pot it in a place with rich soil, it immediately flowers and tries to reproduce. And uh, that's an astonishing phenomenon that we still haven't the first idea how it happens. The other thing that fascinated me was that, and, and I can't understand why I'd never questioned this before, is for the first, I don't know, 16 years of our lives, <laughs> our bones grow mm -hmm. uh, to transform us from babies and eventually into adults, and they grow fairly uh, steadily. And then at some point, the body knows when to stop growing. Mm -hmm. How does it know when to stop growing? And of course, it doesn't always function. Some people <laughs> grow ind indefinitely and yeah. eventually die. Yeah, they keep growing, yeah. And I, I wanted to talk about the idea that um, gigantism, either of the mind in the form of mania, and people who have very high, um, high mood where they feel invincible, that's unsustainable. And people don't manage to live that kind of life for very long. Something happens. And the same thing happens for gigantism of the body. You know, eventually, if you get too big... Uh, your heart struggles, there's a certain limit to the human frame under which its physiology works well, and beyond those limits, people start to, um, to have all sorts of difficulties. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, the bones. Again, it's not really fully understood. So um, your bones keep growing to a certain length, and once you start puberty, there's a timer kicks off, and the amount you will continue to grow is limited. So people who go on to puberty late end up taller. Um, but even once your long bones have stopped growing, 
Um, the pelvis, particularly in girls and women, keeps growing until their 20s. So it's the, the idea that teenage pregnancy might be bad for you has a lot of foundation because the pelvis doesn't continue expanding until you're about 22. And uh, that's when it finishes. And again, it's a very finely calibrated mechanism that you, that you describe in the book that switches off the growth mechanism. And you, you, again, you have to put the book down and just ponder, <laughs> not the miracle, I don't want to reach for theological language, but the wonder, the sense of wonder that this book conveys. And if you haven't read it, please, I do, I do urge you to go and, to go and get it. Um, there's one, before we op- open it to the audience, there's one uh, th- thing I want to ask you to consider, and it's a change I've noticed at my age in my own body, which I know that many people here... <laughs> are going to identify with. Gavin already knows this story because I've tried it out on him already. <laughs> I was, um, I was uh, editing a, a television piece not long ago and I was looking at an interview I'd done a week earlier so I'd forgotten the, what was in it. And I was asking a young woman in Dundee about national identity, about British or Scottish or Welsh or English, or you know, how, how you combine those different identities. And I said to her, when you think of being Scottish, what do, you, what do you see in your mind's eye? And she said, oh, I think of our beautiful countryside, our lochs, our mountains, our rivers. I think of our coastline. I think of Ellen MacArthur. <laughs> and I said to my producer, I said, she's talking rubbish, a grumpy old man. We can't use this. She's talking rubbish. Ellen MacArthur's not, stu- not Scottish, just because her name starts with a Mac. And he looked at me and he said, Alan... She said Edinburgh Castle. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wanted to ask you that because... Not because I want to consult you on the loss of my hearing, Uh but because of the reaction. Because there's a whole essay on laughter. Yeah. And what laughter does. And it gives us a sense of fellow feeling. I think a sense that we, we care more for people who laugh with us uh, and we identify with them, bond with them, mm-hmm. and it promo- you, you talk about how laughter promotes social cohesion, but, yeah. but there are all lots of different kinds of laughter. Yes, there's um, so many different kinds. You, know, you can broadly divide them into two, the laughter that bursts out at something that you perceive as funny, but also the laughter that we put in to conversation, to oil the wheels of social intercourse. And... Um, it used to be thought the two were very, very different, but people are starting, linguists are starting to appreciate that actually there's an enormous overlap between the two kinds of laughter. And the fact that you put laugh into a conversation doesn't make it any less genuine. You know, it's accomplishing something really powerful and important. And it, it used to be believed, if you go all the way back to Hobbes' um, Leviathan, he was talking about the fact that laughter is just about laughing at people. So... If somebody is, something terrible happens to them, you laugh at them, and that makes you feel better about yourself. So he said it, it's some comprehension of some eminency in yourself with regard to the infirmity of others. If you go back to the Greeks, you know, all those dramas, they were all about laughing at people that terrible things happen. If you go to the Bible, think there is something like 30 or 40 references to laughter in the Bible, and they're all of scorn, apart from I think there's one or two that might be perceived as about pleasure. But that itself is changing. You know, Darwin, when he wrote um, uh, The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, he realized, he seemed to be the first thinker to actually say, well, look at children, they laugh all the time. They're constantly laughing. And they don't laugh because they're scorning others. They laugh to share a feeling of high spirits and humor. Even babies. Yeah, babies laughing all the time when they're bonding and experiencing um, being held. And so... This 
idea that laughter is just about scorn or feeling superior is, is, is a lot of rubbish. And I'm particularly interested in how we use laughs to signal trouble in a conversation. You know, people will laugh because it's a universally accepted sound to make that shows you're still involved in the conversation, but you're not quite sure what direction the conversation is going to take. And so you'll give a little laugh. And that makes us all feel more connected. Yeah. You also make the point, I can't remember whether it's in the book or in another essay you wrote, about politicians using laughter mm. to disguise something. Yeah. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of that just now. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the, yes, but this, this is a piece of um, it got coming out uh, in a little while for New York Review, and it's about essentially examining the idea that politicians laugh because it is the one interruption that's sanctioned. If you are being read by an interviewer something that they find uncomfortable, laughter is something you do immediately in order to kind of counter it without being rude to interrupt. And, but of course it doesn't really work, and everybody, everybody knows that it doesn't really work. There's, um, there's a good clip on YouTube of um, uh, Rudy Gugliani um, about where he's being interviewed about his law firm's connections with Venezuela, and he just laughs throughout the whole thing. The interviewer can't get a word in, and the YouTube clip is called Rudy Gigliani. Mm. <laughs> Let's get the house lights up so we can get some uh, questions from you. Um, put, yes, there's a, a gentleman here. Put, put your hand right up so that I can see you, and uh, wait for the microphone if you would. Gavin, I went through the process a lot before you did in medical school. Um, there's a lot happened since then, and the one thing that's really got into, under my skin is epigenetics, how things that we do alter the genetics for the next and the one after that generation. Mm. Yeah, well, um, I can, this is when I can say my line, which I often get to write in letters, which, as a general practitioner, I'm not a specialist in this area. But... Um, yeah, we're just beginning to understand that, yes. In particular, this idea that histones, like the way that the DNA is wrapped in histones expresses the way, changes the way that it's expressed. And we see that all the time in, um, for example, in identical twins. You know, here's people with the same DNA sequence, but they're not the same at all. Different personalities um, end up different phenotypically, different sort of body shapes and so on. So I think we're going to see in the next 20 or 30 years a slowly deepening understanding of how, although we might have the same genetic code, we switch on and off different genes at different phases of our life, and now we can influence that. Yeah, we're beginning to understand just how, for example, why shift work is really bad for you. So if you, um, if you give somebody a haggis supper, um, which we're in Edinburgh, so we should probably do. So if you give someone a haggis supper at 3 a.m., their cholesterol level in their blood will end up double than if you'd given them the same haggis supper at 3 p.m. And that has all sorts of effects on their body health, and that has all sorts of effects we're beginning to appreciate on the long-term way that our genes are expressed. And so um, the short answer is, uh, watch this space. They're going to be figuring it all out in the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yes. G Gavin, um, in your interactions with your patients, you write so well about you seem to be as much therapist as physician. Mm. Uh, you're always 
looking at the symptoms that are being presented and teasing out the underlying things that are going wrong in people's lives behind the scenes. And yet, of course, your training will have been almost entirely as a physician, as a GP. Is there an imbalance there? You obviously augment it with a keen sense of interest in people's lives, but should you be, as a GP, taught more about that and taught to look behind things and listen and talk to people about their lives more? Okay, that's quite a big question. Thank you. Uh, no, um, you know, well, I have bad days at the office and get very grumpy with patients too, but I just don't write about it. Um, I, I do think an enormous part of being any kind of a clinician is about figuring out what kind of person is sitting opposite you. I mean, that's a great Osler line. There was a great physician, a Canadian physician, Osler, said, um, it's far more important to know what kind of patient has the disease than what kind of disease the patient has. Um, Freud said, um, all of you are continually practicing psychotherapy even when you have no intention of doing it and you don't know you're doing it. So everything you say is part of a kind of therapeutic relationship. As a GP, I don't, we just don't have time, I'm afraid. Um, the current resource situation of healthcare in this country means that although 21st medicine is now quite extraordinary in terms of the capacities for it, we've had no concomitant increase in the funding or expansion in the numbers of the doctors to do it. So I just have 10 minute appointments and whereas 20 years ago or even 30 years ago, you might have expected to deal with one problem per appointment. People live so much longer now and there's so much more that can be done that it's not unusual to deal with four or five different problems in every appointment. So I think we absolutely have that role and different GPs manage it in different ways. We can't really undertake it properly because we never have enough time. And your final part of your question was, should we be trained more in that? I don't know. I like to think that medicine is still, there's a lot about medicine that's an old-fashioned apprenticeship. I mean, it's really a kind of a trade. It's a skill rather than um, an academic subject in many ways. And so absolutely, I would like to have more time as students with experienced doctors who really love their job and are good at it, just to be able to watch how they get around these different kinds of problems. That's how I think we get better as therapists, as clinicians, rather than more lectures, more classroom stuff. But at the heart of that question, Gavin, I think, if I'm right, Malcolm, is that, and you do touch on this in the book, some of your patients come looking for medical solutions to problems that are essentially non-medical. Yeah, and I talk in the, the, the book, uh, the chapter on sleep discusses how sometimes people have got all sorts of physical problems, and when they list them, one after the other, it becomes apparent to me that the actual physical problem is of less importance than the fact of suffering that I'm being asked to acknowledge. And when suddenly it clicks and I realize, ah, I'm not expected to get to the bottom of all these different physical things. I'm expected to acknowledge the suffering and then talk about that. And when that happens, which doesn't always happen in these kinds of consultations, it's wonderful. You just suddenly push away all this stuff and we're not talking about tummy ache, headaches, uh, rashes anymore. We're talking about unhappiness and that's a different kind of thing and at least then we all know what we're talking about. Um, but non-medical unhappiness, not depression or, or another kind of mental illness. Yeah, and the, the distinctions are far less clear-cut than we might like to hope. Um, you know, obviously there are very profoundly serious mental illnesses which 
um, require psychiatric support and psychiatric help, there's an enormous amount of just general unhappiness, mm. general anxiety, which doesn't reach the psychiatric clinic that we are dealing with and constantly trying to sieve and decide whether psychiatrists need to get involved. And sometimes just the space is enough, I think, for that. People need a space, a confidential space, maybe a space that a clergyman once occupied to offload all this stuff and then be heard. And then that can occasionally be mm. enough. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, yes, there's a question here and another one. That, well, let's take that one first since you're there and then move mm. the microphone while Gavin's answering along the line to the lady there. Yeah. Hello. Um, you mentioned about anonymizing the patients whose stories you're telling, mm. but for the individual whose story it is, that person will recognize themselves. Um, I just wondered if you wrestled with that. I'm not... Um, the hmm. Yes, in a sense, because, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, it says, um, it says what ought not to be divulged. And that's the way it's been translated from the Greek into English is ought not. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what the Hippocratic Oath means by ought. Now, ought presumably means anything which somebody would find in any way distressing. Now, a lot of these cases that I'm talking about are actually so regular within my experience that people won't recognize themselves because it's really very, very common the kind of things that I'm dealing with. You know, whether it's the birth chapter about a baby with a, a heart murmur, um, whether it's about the sleep chapter and people that have these sort of extraordinary dreams that are telling them things that are wrong with their lives. Um, these are not unusual experiences. And so perhaps there's a little bit of literary sleight of hand there in order to try and keep protecting the patient. But I think, I don't know, I think it's important um, I know some writers about medicine and clinical situations feel the need to be absolutely straight and ask every patient for consent. And that is one position, but I worry about that consent being withdrawn and I worry about my patients feeling put upon to say yes. So they might say, oh yes, of course, Dr. Francis, but they don't really, they're uncomfortable about it in some way, but uncomfortable about, about telling me about that discomfort. So that's why I'm very straight with it. Sorry. In, in your essay on bodybuilding, for example, you describe, is it one, I can't remember whether it's one or two separate patients, one young man who comes to you to tr try to get his acne cured, mm. and you realize that he's using multiple anabolic steroids to, to try and build his body, and you draw a connection between that, that's the, 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 the psychology of, of the projection of that kind of masculinity yeah. and anger and aggression and, and even violence. Mm. And I wonder whether, I wonder how heavily you've anonymized those people. Well, this, that's not an unusual situation. You know, there's so many young men now using steroids. They've even, um, there's a harm reduction clinic opened up in Spittle Street, if anyone knows anyone using steroids. Um, so you can go along, I think it's a Monday night from seven o'clock. And you can go and have all your blood hormone levels checked and all these, because these young guys are buying stuff on the internet and doing it in secret in their bedrooms. And some of them are making themselves infertile. They're giving themselves terrible acne, temper problems. And so at least now there is a clinic they can go to, which is anonymous, where they can go and actually have some professional endocrinology advice about what they're doing to themselves. And one of the things you do in that chapter, which I love, is you tell the story of Hercules. 
mm. and, and ancient mythology has this connection between a projection of certain, a certain kind of masculinity and aggression and violence, and it's, it's caused yeah. by the gods, of course, in, in, but, but the ancients noticed it too. Yeah. Ancients notice the same phenomena there's as you a, see in your clinic. There's, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that's been depicted in, in art through centuries, that moment, the wrath of Hercules, when he, when he loses his mind and he kills his whole family. And, um, you know, there's cases in Australia of people whose defense, whose murder defense in court has been, I was, on, I was using anabolic steroids at the time. So I am not fully accountable for that anger that led me to commit murder, which is basically the story of Hercules. Mm -hmm. And they also, the, the myths, the old myths, have got these wonderful um, hints at the feminization mm. that happens when you take a lot of anabolic steroids. So men who take a lot of steroids, they start the early changes of growing breasts, often their nipples change, and, um, and it makes them infertile. And you know, if you go into the myth of Hercules, he goes through a period of feminization where he stays home and keeps house while his wife goes out into the world. Um, the same thing happens in one of the stories of Achilles, that Achilles' mother, to protect him from going to Troy, dresses him as a woman and hides him in the house um, in order to prevent what she sees as, as, as death, as glorious death in Troy. And the book mm. is full of those observations and the way Gavin connects his own clinical experience to what people have thought for two, three thousand years. Mm. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yes, there's somebody there. Gavin, your first two books were about travel to the north and the extreme south, and your next two books are about the human body. And I know those reflect the two things that you've done with your life, mm. but do you see uh, a connection of themes or ideas between those two quite different sorts of writing? Yeah, I suppose I don't really see them as all that different because... Um, so my first book was about the Arctic, uh, True North, and it was about a journey from Shetland to the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, Svalbard. And it was... Uh, a travelogue, a literary travelogue in the sense of you go to a new landscape, you have an experience in it, you write about your encounters in that landscape, you write about the culture and the history of that place, and, um, and then you move on. And that's really um, no different from this, because I'm traversing a kind of human landscape, there's a human geography there, but essentially I'm going to a new place in the clinic, and you, uh, I'm, I'm exploring a contemporary encounter, I'm exploring the history and the culture and the ideas behind that kind of encounter. And for me, there's a really quite seamless transition between the two. So, yeah, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a geographer, I wanted to make maps. And um, I guess what I've ended up doing is, is making maps of experience, whether that's in Antarctica or in the Arctic or in clinical medicine. Yeah. And both uh, this book and your last one are, in a sense, travel books. Travels through, in the, in the case of the last book, the human body, and in the case of this book, different kinds of human experience. That, that we've got a question here. Um, I, I'd like to ask you about the moon, because um, you, you write that, um, you know, lunacy uh, uh, really um, has mostly has nothing to do with the moon. But we're mostly water and tides go in and out and uh -huh. oysters, if you put, put them in the middle of the desert, they, they'll open according to tides. Yep. I just wonder, you know, if you've done any further work or references uh, yeah. to the effect of the moon on humans. Yeah, um, so... Uh, the chapter on the werewolves explores the idea, you know, when I, I used to work in A&E, 
And if it was a really hard night in A&E and there was police lining up the corridor and there was lots of drunks in handcuffs and you spent the whole night stitching people up, the staff always start rolling their eyes and saying, oh, it must be a full moon. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I even have nipped outside and looked up to check <laughs> because I thought, this is crazy what's going on tonight. You know, payday weekend on a full moon. That is the worst time to be in A&E in Edinburgh. Um, so I looked into this when I was exploring this idea of werewolves. And the, the word lunacy, of course, does come from this idea, that very ancient idea that the moon uh, influences our mind. It's, in, it's there in Othello. Shakespeare's got a lovely line about when the moon comes close to earth, mankind becomes mad. Um, there's all sorts of myths associated with it. And there is a theory that in the old days, before artificial light, the full moon did influence your mental health, if you had slightly tenuous or fragile mental health. Because there's good evidence now from people, historians of the early 19th, 18th century, that at times when there was a full moon, people slept a lot less, because you could get so much more done outside. And that probably had knock-on effects onto um, the, uh, the, the mental stability, men your, your mental frames of reference. But when they examine it now, they can't find any evidence for it. So when they do any big trials and look at, do more people really turn up in A&E? Is there more calls to crisis lines? Do the police get busier? They apparently haven't been able to show an influence. However, last week I was on the phone uh, for a radio interview in, with Australia, and uh, there was a taxi driver in Melbourne phoned in and said, that's rubbish. People are absolutely crazier on a full moon. And he's always having to clear vomit out of his taxi. <laughs> and um, so, I don't know, anecdotally, it seems to be very different. I, I wrote about this in the, in the London Review as well, and there was somebody wrote in from the Brighton Community Residents Association to say that he was graphing the disturbances, according to the moon, <laughs> in the street outside his flat, and it was definitely worse. <laughs> So. And you mentioned the uh, 18th century drinking club, the, the Lunar Society. Yeah, yeah. They used to meet on, uh, uh, once every 28 days on a full moon. Not because they were studying the moon, but because well, they were so drunk at the end of the evening that they found it easier to find their way home by the light, <laughs> yeah. by the light of the full moon. Yes, gentlemen here. Um, Gavin, just on, uh, in relation to werewolves and all of that, there's a guy who lives in the highlands of Scotland who's a very conventional guy who goes to put his suit on, go to work and do that. Um, and one weekend every year, he dresses up as a wolf, and his, his wife uh, allows him to do that, and he runs about, uh, particularly at times when he knows there's trains going to come. Oh. It would be a, a bit embarrassing if he was shot. Uh -huh. But um, um, sh should we all be trying to get in touch with our inner, inner wolf? And, and the other thing is just, <laughs> just on the question of the moon, I had an amazing experience of having a conversation with the psychiatrist, Sardie Lang, and on the island of Iona. And he said to me that um, we make a mistake in this country in sedating people and compelling them to go to sleep when they might be better running about. Mm -hmm. And he himself, on a full moon, on the island of Iona, used to run around barking at the moon. Would you like to comment on these things? <laughs> Would you like to comment on the Do you know I didn't see that mental coming? stability of Ronnie Lang? Yeah. Um, well, he had a very, Ronnie Lang had a very kind of particular perception that we were, that schizophrenia and psychosis, we should not sedate. And I think a lot of people 
with schizophrenia and forms of psychosis would disagree with him, that they actually enjoy the fact that they can control these kind of out of wild feelings and hallucinations and so on. Um, as to whether it's a good idea to kind of have a, a catharsis of your inner wolf once a month, you know, I think it sounds perfect. Or once a year, you said. Yeah. No, I, I've got no problem with that. As I say, children do it all the time. And then we expect them when they hit puberty to stop pretending to be animals. It must be doing something. You had a patient who believed he was a cat and fell out of a tree. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Um, so it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. In, in the book, I talk in particular about um, Boston psychiatrists did a survey because they said there is a perception that lycanthropy, the becoming, uh, being convinced you become an animal, is faded along with wolf populations in uh, Europe and North America. But he said, but we see it all the time. And they wrote up a series of 12 people they'd seen over the course of just a few years, all of whom had been convinced that they turned into an animal for mm. various reasons. Mm. And some people live quite happily like that. You know, they're not um, a danger to anybody else. They're not a danger to themselves. And uh, there's no reason why it should be mm. drugged out of them. Mm. Yeah. Yes. We were talking about the possible effect of the moon on mental health. There seem to be a lot more in the news at the moment about that there are more mental health problems, particularly amongst our young people. Do you think that's actually the case? Or do we recognise those problems more than we used to do? Or are we less resilient? And if there are more problems, do you have a view on what the causes might be? Um, well, it's a very big question. And as a, you know, as back to that line as a GP, I'm not really best placed. I do, um, I do have the, the feeling that I see an awful lot more unhappy teenagers than I used to in clinic. But I don't know how much of that is to do with people feel um, able to come forward in a way because... Schools now are always talking about your mental health and it's much more a subject that people are comfortable talking. And there's two sides to it. In some ways, I think it is absolutely to be welcomed because there used to be an awful lot of people suffering in silence. On the other hand, I'm slightly cautious about the notion which is becoming more prevalent that everybody should be 100% happy all the time. And sometimes... I find myself talking and telling people that it's okay to not be completely delighted with your life all the time. You know, the adolescence is a period of great upheaval. Uh, I, I try to touch on some of that in this chapter on puberty. You know, the most incredible changes happen during puberty in terms of burning away all aspects of your childhood self and hardening other aspects. You know, teenagers have to experiment in so many different ways. And it's odd if you would expect that to be um, unaccompanied by any kind of unhappiness. The, but the last thing you asked about causes, I mean, maybe it's, um, it's, it's very uh, unoriginal to say it, but I do think that this sort of um, epidemic of smartphone use doesn't help a lot of people. And I see a lot of kids coming in and they really can't manage more than a minute without looking at their phone. People coming in to talk to me about their unhappiness and the fact they can't study for their exams and they're actually getting their phone out of their pocket while talking to me to look at it. And so I don't think that's helpful at all and I don't know how we roll that back. You know, it's my generation that have seen all this introduced and we don't know how to handle it either. So I think there's going to be another few decades until we figure out a new equilibrium with this technology. 
I'm going to have to draw it to a close there. This is an absolutely engrossing book, and for those of you who love the English language, it's also beautif beautifully written. So I do recommend going over there to the signing tent. <laughs> you can buy a copy in the signing tent and carry on the conversation with Gavin. Please thank Linda Duncan. Thanks to all of you for coming to the inaugural event in this new Spark Theatre, which we're very excited about. And most of all, thank Gavin. Yeah, More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.